impressed. All right. In the beginning, God did not create this cold. Amen? Amen. All right. Good deal. Hey, Bob, thank you uh, for coming. Uh, it is good even just to have you praying with us, ma'am. So we're excited. Thank you. Um, we are starting Genesis today. I'm excited. All right. I'm really excited for real. So uh, I will try not to go long. So let's go ahead and dive right in. All right. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We will be in Genesis, obviously, chapter one. Uh, we'll start there today. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, please feel free to take and keep that. It's our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to have one. You can also follow along on your smartphone. Uh, if you have the YouVersion app underneath the events section, type in the Well Austin and you can find us there. Uh, if you you don't know what I'm talking about, don't have the YouVersion app, you can take that link, put it right into your browser. Uh, there are scriptures and prayer requests, places for that. Everything is going to be there on your phone. So we say this every week because we mean it. Uh, we want your eyes on the word so that you can see that what we're saying isn't just me up here trying to say something, but we believe this is the word of God speaking to us about how he wants to know us, how to live our lives in light of him. So we want you to see the scriptures, all right? Um... So what I'm going to do here today is I'm going to try to lay a little bit of a foundation uh, so that in a lot of ways we can track throughout the book of Genesis. So it's a good thing that you're here today, all right? Uh, I will say that in the future, uh, if you miss a Sunday, I would actually really encourage you for this series to uh, check it out uh, online. We post our sermons. They're usually up 10 minutes after church is done. And so uh, if you miss a Sunday, we'd love for you to catch up. In a lot of ways, the book of Genesis kind of strings together, uh, and so by no means means if you miss a week, will you be absolutely out of the picture? So you can still invite friends in the middle of our series, all right? They'll, they'll come in, they'll get stuff. But in a lot of ways, Genesis is kind of like, like a TV show, like The Office. It's like you can come in on season four and you would still enjoy it, but you'll miss some of the inside jokes, all right? Does that make sense? Like 30% of people watch The Office, all right? That was a, uh, all right, anyway, so here we go. Um, so that's Genesis, so stay up to date with us. Uh, also, for real, I would love if you did the Bible reading plan. Uh, the people who helped author that put a lot, a lot of work into it, uh, a lot of work, okay? And so um, I think it'll be really encouraging. What the Bible reading plan is, is it tries to help you see that Genesis isn't an isolated book, but rather the book of Genesis actually strings all the way throughout the rest of Scripture, and that in a lot of ways is foundational to the things that we see and we believe. And so we hope that every week you kind of see that a little bit. So if you're not in something else in scripture, if you're not doing a, a plan yourself, I would love for you to jump in and do that. I think it'll be really encouraging. All right. I'm smiling inside because I'm already anticipating this series. So are you ready? Here we go. Okay. Let us start Hebrews chapter 11. Ah, I tricked you, huh? You thought we were going to start in Genesis. You don't have to actually turn here. But uh, Hebrews chapter 11, it will be on the screen. I do want to start here before we read Genesis 1. Here we go. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Okay, Here's why I start with this verse. Because so often people take Genesis chapter 1 and they get caught up on all the scientific debates or creation versus evolution or different things like that. And in getting tangled up in all of this, they actually completely miss the point of Genesis 1. Hebrews is telling 
telling us that Genesis 1 is not trying to give us a scientific theory about what happened in the world. It's not trying to produce in us the scientific equation so that we can understand scripture. But what it's trying to do is it's trying to help us see the big picture of who God is, that God is good, that he created all things, and that he desires to have a relationship with us. It's trying to produce in us faith, okay? Now, that isn't saying that we just kind of read Genesis 1 and just have blind faith and say, hey, I'm just going to believe and throw all science out the window. It's also not saying that science and scripture doesn't coincide because if you interpret Genesis 1 correctly, then there are no scientific inconsistencies with this book. But Hebrews is telling us that that's not the point of Genesis 1. It's not to get us to understand science. In fact, in a lot of ways, God would be doing us a disservice if right out the gun, he tried to produce in us this intellectual knowledge rather than produce in us a faith in who he is and help us to see he longs for a relationship with us. And so Genesis 1 immediately, according to Hebrews, is trying to produce in us faith, is trying to give us faith, is trying to help us see how big God is, okay? So I'm not going to tell you whether or not I think the world was created in seven days or seven million years, all right? Though I do have an opinion about that. But that's not the point, Genesis is saying. What I want to do today is display the beauty, the intricacy, the majesty of God that we see through Scripture because I think that Genesis 1 is probably one of the most beautiful chapters ever written in human history, And so I hope that we see the beauty, the majesty of God. That's how scripture kicks us off, right? So you tracking with me? Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay, so that's that. If you want to have a debate, uh, talk to Michael Cox. He's new on staff and he would love to have that debate with you, all right? So here we go. Uh, Genesis chapter 1, I'm actually going to read the whole text. So I want you to stay with me a little bit because this is going to make more sense if we have the whole text in our mind. So I know we have a short attention span sometimes. Reading for five minutes may be hard, but read along with us, all right? We're going to go to chapter 2, verse 3 because that's the last day of creation. I'm not really sure why they subdivided the chapters there. All right, so we're going to go from 1-1 to 2-3. All right, you ready? Three people. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves in which the waters swarm according to their kinds, every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast and the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God rested or God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, first of all, what do we see in all this, all right? The first thing we see right off the bat is that the word God is actually mentioned 35 times in all of what we read. If you were listening, you probably heard it more when you listen auditorily. There's a lot of repetition that goes on here. We'll talk about that for a minute. But 35 times the word God is mentioned, okay? And so what does that kind of tell us off of the cusp? Well, that the Bible is about God. All right, God is the hero in creation. Scripture is trying to show us who God is. This whole story is about God and his creation and how God interacts with his creation. He's over everything. So it's not about man and it's not the frequently misunderstood believers uh, instructions before leaving earth. You ever heard that? 
right? If you grew up in church, you probably heard that a little bit. I didn't grow up in church, okay? So I'm just repeating what Natalie told me, all right? But that's what we hear, okay? But that's not really necessarily what it is. Now, man does have a very prominent role in the Bible. In a lot of ways, man is the supporting actor, but God is the main actor. The Bible is about God. He's the prominent role, okay? And so that's what we see right off the cusp. In verse 1 in the Hebrew, there are a couple of interesting things, which I'll put back on the screen there for you. But first of all, you see the phrase, the heavens and the earth, okay? This is called a mirrorism, all right? This is just a literary tool or device to kind of display completeness or totality. So if I said that uh, this church is for the young and the old, you would know that I meant this church is for everybody. This is a mirrorism. So when he says the heavens and the earth, what he's saying is God created everything. And so Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is the Cliff Notes version to Genesis 1. So if you get really lazy, you don't want to read all of that, just read Genesis 1.1, all right? In the beginning, God created everything. That's what it's trying to tell us. The rest of it is just a commentary on that creation. The rest of it is trying to give emphasis onto what that actually looks like. Secondly, the phrase God there is Elohim, which is a plural noun. But the phrase created in Hebrew is bara, which is a singular verb. Okay, now, without getting too much into language, you actually can't do that. You can't have a plural noun with a singular verb. Now, we don't necessarily do that in English, so I tried to think of an English example, and I couldn't. You can't do it. But if you speak another language, you know that a plural noun has to be modified by a plural verb. So this sentence is grammatically incorrect. The very very first sentence of the Bible is incorrect. So either the author had really bad language skills, he grew up in Detroit public school systems, all right, or the author's doing it very intentionally. He doesn't mess up anywhere else in chapter one or two. So what is he doing here? Well, he's trying to draw our attention to something immediately right off the cusp. The Bible shows us that there's only one God, hence the singular verb. There wasn't a bunch of gods kind of going around creation. There wasn't like this great war in heaven and then out of that exploded creation. Man didn't help God. Angels didn't help God. God created everything that we see. There was one God in creation, but there's a plural noun. Why? Well, we already see the Holy Spirit in verse 2 hovering over the waters. And Colossians 1 tells us that it was actually through Christ that all things were created. Immediately, the Bible is actually trying to show us the doctrine of the Trinity. That God is three persons, yet one God, hence the plural and the singular noun. So literally, right off the bat, four words in, is trying to show you something about God. The very first verse is trying to communicate to us. That's kind of cool, huh? And so what does that tell us? Well, point one is, while the Bible is about God, it's written to man about who God is and how we can know him. That's the first point. The Bible, though it's about God, is written to us about who God is and how we can know him immediately it's trying to communicate that to us. Here's who God is. Here's how you can know him. He's a triune God. It gives clues. It drops breadcrumbs like the Trinity, this vast doctrine right off the bat, right off the first verse, okay? Here's also something interesting. Look there at verse eight, if you skim down there with your eyes. For the Jews, the first day of the week would have been a Sunday. And so verse eight is the second day of creation. Sunday has already happened. And so there's day one is finished. Now we're in day two. This is the only day where you don't see God say it was good. 
right? Do you see that there? It just, he creates and then it just goes on to the third day. So verse eight just ends. Why? Well, because verse eight would be a Monday and even God didn't say Mondays were good, all right? So if you wanna complain about tomorrow, you have the liberty to do that. God did not say Mondays were good, okay? Sometimes I wonder if God drops jokes into the Bible like that for us, all right? In all seriousness though, okay? So it doesn't say it's good, but what happens is I wanna zoom out for a second because I, I make that point for a reason. Hold on to that. He doesn't say it was good on a Monday, okay? But this whole chapter, what we said, should produce in us faith and awe and understanding and help us see who God is in very beautiful ways. It should make us want God as our God. It should make us desire to have this Yahweh God ruling over us that he is our God and that we are his people. This is what Genesis 1 should create according to Hebrews 11. So here's my argument, okay? Genesis chapter 1 is the greatest piece of poetry ever written, ever. I mean that very sincerely. Genesis 1 is the greatest piece of poetry ever written. So creatives and artists, you should actually really appreciate this, which we'll try to unpack here in a second. But Genesis 1 is also some of the most structured and systematic verses in all of the Bible and really in all of mankind's written creation. This is some of the most structured, systematic uh, 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 thing that we have that we can read. And so lawyers, doctors, engineers, accountants... This should actually really connect with you too. There's a lot of feeling in Genesis 1. So you feelers, the F's on the Myers-Briggs, okay? This should interact with you. But there's also a lot of logic, a lot of systems. So the thinkers, this should interact with you too. The T's on the Myers-Briggs. In a lot of ways, God is trying to interact with every single person in here and hit them where they would best feel or think or see who God is because he wants to show he's your God. He can be your God. And so there's all this beauty that happens, all this uh, simplicity and structure, but all this beauty and creation, all these things kind of collide at Genesis 1 to help us see who God is. So for example, let's dive into some of that. The Hebrews, uh, for the Jews, who this would have originally been written to, numbers were very, very, very important. They signified something more than just explaining things. So in English, we just kind of use numbers to explain. Like, I had three fish. That's just explaining how many fish I had. Or the Ridleys had eight kids, okay? Jake and Lauren, I just prophesied over y'all. You're fine with that, all right? So we're just trying to uh, explain things, and that's it. That's how numbers were used. But for the Jews, numbers actually meant something. So numbers like one or three, seven, 10, 12, 40. If you're familiar with the Old Testament a little bit, some of those numbers ring out because over and over they're trying to communicate something. They all show us something different. In fact, one out of every four verses in the Old Testament contain a number. Why? because it was part of the way they communicated, part of the way they understood who God was. Now, the Jews had three numbers to signify or to understand completion or perfection. That was the number three, the number 10, and the number seven. Those three numbers, when you see them in scripture, usually they're more than just saying there were three sons or there were 10 of this thing or there were seven of these things. What it's trying to show is actually this idea of completion or perfection, that all things line up how they're supposed to, those are the three numbers that show it. So you ready for this? Genesis chapter one, first of all, has several sets of threes, okay? For example, God names three times, you'll see there in those verses. Now, the interesting thing is God doesn't name after day three. Why? Because it's man's job to name. 
God allows us to co-labor with him in his creation, just like he allows us to co-labor with him in salvation, the new creation that God wants to interact with. There's also the verb created that's used three times, or God gives blessing three separate occasions. And so on and on, we see these lists of threes. There are more here, but I just wanted to show you kind of the start of it. You also have several sets of tens in Genesis 1. So the phrase God said occurs 10 times. According to its kind occurs 10 times. The verb made occurs 10 times, etc. So once again, there's a lot more than just what's here on the screen. But all throughout, we see all of these things. What is it trying? to communicate to the readers that God is perfect. God is complete. What he's doing is holistic. He knows what he's doing. Even more, though, is this organization into the number seven, which would represent a divine completion, okay? Look at this. There are seven reports God saw. There are seven evaluations. It was good, despite Monday not being good. He still somehow found a way to complete it, right? Uh, Furthermore, verse one Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1 has seven Hebrew words. So in your English, you'll have nine or ten. But in Hebrew, there are seven words there. Chapter 1, verse 2 has 14 words or seven times two. We already said God is used 35 times or seven times five. Heaven is used 21 times, earth 21 times. The phrase, it was so seven times. God saw seven times. There are seven days and there are actually seven Hebrew paragraphs. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, there are 35 words or once again, seven times five. And get this, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, every time the word seventh is used, so seven, it is in a clause with seven words. And so all of this intricacy and almost every single day has a sevenfold command to it. There's announcement, command, fulfillment, execution, approval, subsequent word, and the number day. And so God is doing things in sets of seven in the midst of every single day. I mean, talk about structured. right? Like this is extremely structured. This may be one of the most beautiful things ever written because it talks about the creation. And as you read it, if you close your eyes, you can see things beginning to happen, but there's all this structure, all this set and system with it. I mean, Shakespeare is lame compared to this, right? Like God is so intricate. He knows what he's doing. Furthermore, more structure than just numbers. There's a lot of things like this. In verses 14 through 15, it says God created the sun and the moon to separate days, to be as a sign or to rule and to illuminate the earth. Then in verses 17 through 18, he says it's to illuminate the earth, to rule and to separate days. See the reversal there? A, B, C, C, B, A, that's called chiasm. This whole chapter is flooded with these. There's all throughout this, okay? In fact, in Hebrew, the chapter two, verse three, actually uses the exact same words as chapter one, verse one, except in reverse order. Why? Because it's trying to communicate this structure. God is complete. He knows what he's doing. Furthermore, look at how the days line up. Day one lines up with day four. And in fact, in day one, there was only one creation, the light. And then in day four, there was only one creation, the lights. But then day two lines up with day five. But there's one work to day five, the firmament or the inhabitants, but there's two parts to that work. He created the birds and the, and the, or I'm sorry, the sky and the seas and then the birds and the fish. Do you see how these connect to each other? Birds fly in the sky, fish swim in the sea. The light is with the light. 
And then in day three, there's actually two works and two aspects. He twice says, let us make or let there be. And God does two different works of creation on those days. The dry land so the land animals can live and the vegetation, he says, so that humans can eat, so that they can thrive. So, I mean, all of this structure mixed with the creativity here is astounding. And to be honest, I haven't even unpacked half of it because I thought you'd get bored by this point. Seriously, literally one of my commentaries is about that thick and 20% of it was on Genesis chapter one. I mean, literally 20% was just on all of the structure and all of the system. The number of verbs line up, the number of nouns line up, the number of pronouns line up. There's all these more number numerology that's in there. I mean, even if man wrote this, even if this wasn't inspired by God, which we believe it is, we believe the Holy Spirit wrote this through man. But even if just man wrote this, the amount of time it would have taken to write something this detailed, but yet still create the beauty and the creativity in the midst of it and make it make logical sense. Like that would have taken years to make that all be this beautiful, but this intricate, man, it all lines up. So what does this show us? Point two is that God is not chaotic, okay, but purposeful. Therefore, we can trust him. God is not chaotic, but he's purposeful and therefore we can trust him. You know, day one, He's not just doing that randomly. He knows what he's going to do on day four. Day three, he knows what he's going to do on day six. And notice, once again, the sets of threes in there, how they line up, right? Like, God knows what he's doing. In fact, opposite of verse two, where things were dark and formless and void and empty, where God is, there is beauty, there is light, there is majesty, there is order, Where God is not, there is chaos. This is a good thing because it tells us that God knows what he's doing and we can trust him and he doesn't change, okay? He's not all over the place. He's not just making stuff up. In fact, when something happens in your life that kind of comes out the blue for you, it's not out the blue for God. He knows what he's doing. He has things under control even when it seems like there may be darkness and chaos around us. He's detailed, he's specific. And so even in the midst of the darkness and chaos around us, This tells us that we can trust God. He knows what he's doing. He's not aloof. He's not just willy-nilly random. He's beautiful and creative, yet structured and purposeful in the midst of all of that. In fact, for the Christian, we can be assured that our lives will end in light and in godly order because that's what it looks like to be with God. There's light, there's order, there's beauty. And for those who decide not to have God as their God, who want to push God away, then what it's telling us is that their life will end in darkness and chaos and disorder and disunity. In fact, the reason that we feel a lot of the chaos and darkness and disunity around us is because we're living in a world that is very absent of the presence of God, yet God is still interacting with this world to try to hold things together so that we don't just implode out of chaosness, right? Like God knows what he's doing in the midst of this. God is active still, but even in the darkness, we can see God moving. What this also tells us is that for those who trust God, one day there will be no more tears of chaos. See, tears come because darkness happens, right? There will be no more of that. There will be no more of the chaos of the darkness of suffering or depression or fear or loneliness or frustration. We will have light and peace and a good godly king like all things are going to be set. Like this is what Genesis 1 tells us. This is what it looks like to live with God. Things make sense. 
You're not confused anymore. You're not frustrated at what's going on. Everything lines up. Your faith isn't shaken and the enemy isn't sitting here trying to stir you. No, you see God in the fullness of who he is and you rejoice. Everything makes sense. And when there isn't God, there is darkness. And so what happens is, is we get to see either we can align ourselves to the Genesis chapter 1 verse 3, let there be light, and there is, or Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, there's darkness, there's chaos, there's void. And it happens on what we decide to do with God, how we interact with him. See, think about the structure even in this. In Genesis chapter 3 verse 1, there was light, but there was not yet a sun. And then in Revelation chapter 22, verse 5, the very last chapter of Scripture, there is light, but there's no sun because Jesus is our light. So the Bible starts with light, but no sun, and it ends with light, but no sun. Why? Because God knows what he's doing. He's trying to communicate to us, even in Genesis chapter 1, where his presence is, that's where the wholeness, the fullness, that's where we feel complete. And so we have an opportunity to enter back into the Genesis 1 of God's creation by believing in him. And Revelation 22 is just a beautiful picture of that again, that we get to go back to the garden in a lot of ways. So maybe not fully yet. Maybe things don't fully make sense. Maybe there's still darkness, confusion, frustration. But even in the midst of this, we can still see God working. Okay, let's move on from structure. In chapter two, we see God rest from his creation. He completes it on the seventh day, representing completion once again. And what does this tell us? Well, Philippians chapter one, verse six tells us that he who began a good work in you will bring it to, what's the word? Completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He who started working in you will finish his work in you. Just like God finished the work of creation, God will finish the work of new creation. Those of us who have been made new in Christ, who have been a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God will actually complete that work. He will rest from that work even more than that. Those of us who believe in God will get to enter into God with that rest. We will rest with God and in God. And just as he completed his work, so one day he will complete the work that he began in you. God's not chaotic. He's not all over the place. He's structured. He knows what he's doing. If it started on day one for you and you came to be a believer, it'll end in day seven for you and you will be brought to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will finish it. It's not better start getting at least one or two amens, right? Like to the glory of God, amen? Like God is good. He knows what he's doing. He loves you. He's interacting with you even in the midst of this. The Sabbath in chapter two also tells us that as God completed the work, so one day we will get to enter that rest. We'll have peace. What Genesis one also shows us is the extreme intimacy that God desires to have with all of his creation, but particularly with the humans that he created. So let's zoom in there, okay? We're, we're kind of hitting at a high level. Let's zoom in. This will be the last part of the sermon, by the way. Zoom in to verses 26 through 27 here. Firstly, you'll notice in your Bible, okay, if you have a physical Bible, you'll notice that it shifts from narration to poetry. Do you see that? Narration kind of just lines up the words like we have on the screen here. But in your Bibles, you'll see that it shifts into poetry as it gets into that. Why? Well, poetry expresses what? Emotion or it's the language of love. It's when you're trying to communicate something even deeper. Now, God bestowed his love upon all of creation But when he got to mankind, he began to speak this love. He began to try to show this love, to display this love. You'll also notice that it shifts from let us make or let let there be to let us make. 
right? So if you go back through all the other ones, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. He just speaks and boom, it goes into existence. But with mankind, he says, hey, let us make. Victor Hamilton, who is a commentator, says the shift from the consistent use of the verb and the justive, let there be, to the cohortive, let us make, is enough to prepare the reader for something momentous on the sixth day. Bruce Walkey, who's a, a professor at RTS and a writer, says, utilizing the structure of the creative process, the narrator constructs the story with billowing detail and movement. With crescendo, the narrator, listen, devotes more time and space to each day until the climatic apex of creation. So day one has the least amount of words, then day two, then day three. But when it gets to day six, God really starts explaining things. See, the structure there gets bigger and bigger. Why? Because he's doing the crown of his creation, humanity, So he says, let us make. Now, who's the us there? Okay, because before it was just let there be, let there be, but let us. Well, we kind of already hinted at it in verse one. It's the Trinity or the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see the Spirit in verse two. Christ, Colossians one tells us, it was through him that all things were created. And so immediately we see God intimate with us. And we'll dive more into that next week and the intimacy that God desires to have with his creation. But Genesis one tries to tell us that right off the start, that he created every single human being special, intricate, purposeful. Psalm 139, in fact, says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, here's where our understanding of scripture and our belief completely disconnect because most of us don't believe that we're that special to God, but he gave you ears so that you can know that he hears you. See, he created you in his image and likeness to try to display who he is to you. So when you think about, hey, what am I doing? What's on me? What is my purpose? What do I look like? Like this is all trying to communicate God's goodness to us. Remember, Hebrews says it's to produce faith in us. So you have ears to show God hears you. You have eyes to show that God sees you. You have emotions because God feels for you. He loves you. His heart is for you, scriptures say. Friends, you're more than just some random or mere chance. You were created by the divine. The God of the world created you. Not just let there be, but let us what? Make. In chapter two, we'll get into next week. He crafts us. He molds us. He touched us. God comes down and begins to get intimate with his creation. You showcase the divine. Not that we are gods, we're not, we're far from him, but all of us do carry a trace of the divine in our DNA. In fact, we reflect the image of God. In fact, that's what makes church so beautiful is that when you get different types of people, blacks, whites, Asians, Hispanics, engineers, doctors, creatives, artists, lawyers, old, young, whatever you get, city folk, uh, country folk, Austinites, whatever it may be, we actually see the image of God in the fullness because we see different aspects of God. We were created to display the beauty of God, which means you're important to God. Listen, listen. God loves you. God loves you, okay? If that doesn't mess you up a little bit, it should, because you're not really, if you're going to be honest with yourself, worth the divine loving when we think about our works and how they measure up to this amount of perfection in Genesis 1. Are we anything like that? We're so chaotic and disordered and disoriented and we create so much chaos, but scripture tells us that God loves us anyway, God loves you, you. God loves you. This is crazy. 
He created you to be intimate with you, to know you. You weren't uh, uh, here to, to just kind of perform for God, which, by the way, that's what all other creation text tells us. In fact, all other creation texts says that man were created to give food to the gods. But if you look in verse 29, it says God gives food to us. Why? Because you weren't created just to serve God, just as some little minions to kind of do his bidding and his will. No, you were actually created that he may bestow his love upon you. He wanted to give you his love. And so he gives it more and more and more and we get to receive it. We are the recipients of the love of God. This is crazy. This is crazy. Genesis 1 tells us that you were created intimately to be loved by God. In fact, it completely goes against all of the works-based mentality that we have in our lives. See, our hearts tell us that if we perform for God, if we're a good boy or a good girl, then God will love us. In fact, every other religion in the world says if you do enough good deeds, then you'll be accepted by God. In fact, even if you're not religious, even if you're atheistic, over and over and over again, there's this idea of karma. If you do good, good will happen. If you do bad, bad will happen. It's all works-based. But scripture immediately shows us, no, no, no. God is for you. God is working for you. He is serving you. He is loving you. You don't have to give and give and give. God wants to give and give and give to you. You were created to receive love from the divine. That is why your heart screams out for affection with this God because it was created to receive this love. Immediately off the bat, we see God loves you. And so our second point, or our third point, sorry, our last point, is that God is not a distant God, but he's present in his creation and he wants a relationship with you. God is not distant, let there be this, let there be this, and then he's done. And then he's just chilling up in heaven right? No, God is integrated. He's special. He comes down in Genesis 2. He comes down in Genesis 3 when they fall, which we'll see in a couple of weeks. And he walks amongst the garden and says, Adam, where are you? And he talks to them. Why? Because God is not way off in heaven. He's intimate. He wants to know you. He wants to know you, to be intimate with you. Gosh, <laughs> like this is crazy because we don't deserve that if we're honest. We don't deserve that, but he gives it to us anyway because God is love. Now you may say, well, how come it doesn't always feel like that? How come sometimes it feels like God is so freaking distant? How come sometimes it feels like there's nothing but darkness and kind of chaos around us? How come it feels like I can't really always trust him, even though you say we can trust him, it doesn't feel like that? Do you see what's going on in our lives? Well, it's because we haven't gotten to Genesis 3 yet. But Genesis 3 tells us that though God longs for a relationship with us, we often don't long for it back with him. We turn our backs against him. We don't trust him. We say, no, 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 I'm going to have it my way. We go the route of Genesis 1-2 rather than the route of Genesis 1-3. And maybe not us, but the world around us sure as heck does that. And so we live in the midst of this. There's darkness, there's chaos, because we either think that God is not good or we think that we are God. And both of them are colossal lies that we'll see in Genesis 3. We think that he's not good or we think that we are God. And so then it's hard to trust him. It's hard to see him fully, but he's not. So how do we undo the chaos then that we feel sometimes, even in the midst of the well, even in our own family, even in our own lives? How do we undo this feeling of, man, is God distant? Is he there? Does he care? How do we gain this relationship with God? How do we gain back the light of the gospel in our lives even more than just Genesis 1, scriptures lay this out. 
And it lays it out through the person and work of Christ. This story is a story about Christ redeeming his creation that started in Genesis 1. See, Christ is the perfect image bearer of God. He's the exact representation of God, Hebrews and Colossians would tell us. He is exactly who God created man to be. Christ comes and he fulfills that, the true Imago Dei. If you look in verse 28, after God created man, he gave man a mission, okay? He blessed man and gave him a mission to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the earth. This wasn't to rule the earth with an iron fist and to kind of stomp down and to lord over creation. No, we were meant to be like God. And so like God, he serves and serves and serves and gives and gives and gives. So we were meant to serve his creation, to give to his creation, not to lord over in agony, but to love his creation. And then in chapter two, we were supposed to rest with God, walk with him rest with him, be with him. Instead, we often produce bad fruit. We often produce chaos and darkness. Or instead of serving, we're simply consumers. I mean, we do that even in the church, right? Give, 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 give. If it's not given, I don't like it anymore. We do that in our relationships and our marriages. Give, 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 give. Oh, you're not giving. I'm not out down with this anymore. We just consume and we take and we take rather than being what God created us to be. We don't fill the earth with love, but we fill the earth with violence, hence the Florida shooting again. How many times is this going to happen? We live in Genesis 3. We live in darkness and chaos. People are creating chaos around it. And we, even if it's not us directly, are hit with it. We get slammed with it all the time. And we can't seem to find the rest that Genesis 2 tells us that we should rest in. We can't seem to find it. Things are busy, chaotic, all over the place. We're tired, we're weary, we're burdened. We don't create rest. We create unrest for ourselves even. But isn't Jesus the great image bearer? Isn't Jesus the perfect example of man? See, he makes the church his bride. There's all these verses I'll put up here. You'll have to go through them. You can write them down if you want to look at later. But Jesus makes the church his bride, and then he's what? Fruitful and multiplies. He fills the earth with a bunch of his spiritual children. You and I who believe in Christ, and one day we'll look just like him, Scripture says. We will literally be him. He will multiply himself. He blesses the Christian. He serves the Christian. And then he comes and he is Lord over everything, even Satan and death and the enemy and darkness and hell itself. God puts it under his feet. He reigns over it. God is over all. He puts all things in submission like man was supposed to, but we messed it up and couldn't. So Jesus comes and does it for us. He's the perfect human. And then he enters into rest with God. He rests now. He's the great Sabbath. Even at the cross, if you think about it, when he was paying for the darkness of this world, things got dark and chaotic again, didn't they? Just like Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says the whole sky went black. Tombs were opening and like dead people were coming out the graves. Like things were chaotic and what is going on here? And it was completely dark. Why? Because Christ was paying for the darkness that we introduced back into the world and he was bringing back the light of the gospel. And scripture tells us that if we believe in Jesus, then we too will be filled with this light. Remember the passage that we read to start off, John chapter one, in him was the life, the light of man, that in Jesus we have light again. And so scripture tells us that in Christ, we can go back to Genesis one, but move forward. And that one day all things will be made right again. So my question for us as we close is, where are you not trusting God? Where do you think he's untrustworthy? Like if you're in day chapter or day two 
It may seem like, wait a minute, where's my vegetation? How am I going to eat? What's going on, right? It may seem like God doesn't know what he's doing, but he knows what he's doing. And so maybe for you, maybe you're even a believer, and you're saying, man, where is God at? Or maybe you're afraid of God, or you're afraid to relinquish full control, so you try to keep control in your life. Friends, you can trust God. He knows what he's doing, and he proves it in the person and work of Christ, that he would go to the grave to display his love for you. He's not a distant God. He's a present God. And friends, for those of us who don't know Jesus, we, we haven't surrendered our lives to him, man, what's holding us back? What would keep you from a God like this who doesn't demand your service? He serves you. Who doesn't, isn't distant, he's present. Who's not chaotic, he's structured. You can have godly light for eternity. Friends, one day, it'll kind of go backwards a little bit and there'll be no more sun because Christ will be our sun. You know how uh, sometimes, which we don't feel today, but when it's like been cold for a while and you go outside and you feel the light hitting you and it just feels good, you know what I'm talking about? What do you think that is? But God trying to display, man, one day you're gonna be radiating in the light of Christ and the rays of Christ will permeate through you and it will feel perfect because God will complete his creation and he wants to do it in you. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, thank you for Genesis 1. Thank you for scripture. Thank you, God, that you're not chaotic and all over the place, but you know what you're doing. Lord, you are active in creation. You love, you give, you serve. God, we thank you for that. So Lord, I pray that even today, Lord, that there may be some of us in here who don't trust you as God, who don't trust you as Savior, who needs more and more answers, and maybe it just seems chaotic. God, I pray even today, Holy Spirit, like you were doing in verse 2, that you would hover over the darkness of our hearts and create light there. Lord, that we would be able to see you in the fullness of who you are. God, for us who are struggling with the darkness depression, sorrow, loss of life, relational status, whatever it may be, finances. God, would you show us we can trust you. You will make all things right. God, man, thank you for that promise, God. And Jesus, thank you for proving it on the cross that you'll go to the grave to save us, to make things right again. Let us trust you, God. I pray that would be true of our church this year, that we would be a church that trusts you. Praise in your very beautiful name. Amen.